This is Tony Roth, Chief Investment Officer of Wilmington Trust, and you are listening to Season 4 of Capital Considerations. Welcome. We are kicking off our new season with a conversation of our new strategic asset allocations and our new underlying assumptions, capital market assumptions, for our asset classes. This is a conversation that is incredibly important to start the year. It refers to a task that we only undertake once every three to five years. And quite frankly, it may not be for for many the most sexy conversation, but it is a very critical conversation because it fundamentally changes the kinds of investments that we're buying in client portfolios, or at least the mix of those investments. And at the same time, it requires that all clients reevaluate their goals and objectives in light of a different mix of assets and portfolios and a different mix of underlying return assumptions for those assets. So it's important to understand why we're doing it. And it's important to undertake that planning exercise that I describe, which is essentially aimed at maximizing wealth over time and maximizing the probability of meeting financial goals. And I'm here with our chief economist, Luke Tilley. You might have heard Luke on prior podcast episodes, and he's also a frequent contributor on Fox Business and CNBC. And prior to joining Wilmington Trust, Luke worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, and he was also a senior economist at IHS Market. And he also worked as an economist for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Luke oversees the team that is responsible for our views on economic forecasting and asset class returns, and is the perfect person to help us understand why we've made these changes to our our long-term investing through our strategic asset allocations. So, Luke, thank you so much for joining me today for this very important conversation. Yeah, happy to be here. So let me just set the table by reminding our listeners that the way we invest, which is quite typical for the industry, is we look out into the world and we look at all of the investable opportunities that exist and we bucket them into asset classes. So we look at opportunities that have similar risk and return characteristics, like for example, US large cap equities. Once they're bucketed in an asset class, we then ascribe to that asset class return expectations, risk expectations, which are essentially how volatile do we expect that asset class to be. And then ultimately, we look at historical behavior among asset classes, and we figure out what's the correlation between asset classes. If one asset class goes down, does another asset class tend to go down too, or does it tend to go in the opposite direction? And once we have that data set, we have our asset classes set, all the investable opportunities are falling into one asset class, and the asset classes have their risk return and correlation numbers, we can then build portfolios using traditional mean variance investment techniques, and in certain cases, more sophisticated techniques. What's critical for this conversation is to appreciate that sometimes we look at the world and we say, gee, things have really changed a lot. Our outlook for a particular asset class may be entirely different than it was five years ago when we last set our asset allocations. And so on January 1st of this year, we made changes to our strategic asset allocations and the underlying return and risk assumptions for those asset classes, driven by a number of things, primarily by the change in the sizes of the asset classes over the last several years, 
as well as the change in the outlook for interest rates and inflation and, and other economic factors. And so what we're going to do today is talk about why we made these changes, what the changes were, and how the economic trends that are causing these changes are going to continue to develop in a direction that we think are now captured by these new better asset allocations for our clients. So why don't we start, Luke, by talking about what are some of the the key differences in the environment from an economic standpoint that you're focused on that sort of underwrote these changes that we've made to our long-term forecasts for these different investable asset classes? Yeah, sure, Tony. I, I think, yeah, the focus on the economy and what our outlook is on a longer-term basis is so important. And of course, it has changed over the past three years since we last set these. First, focusing on the U.S. We know that we've gone through quite a big change structurally through the pandemic, and that has affected everything from growth to inflation. Our longer-term outlook for GDP is not dramatically different from when we set our long-term allocations three years ago. We're looking at, over the next five years, annualized GDP growth of 1.6%. That's a little bit lower than what we've seen over the past couple of decades, but it goes in line with sort of a downward, a slowing trend, if you will. The bigger change is on inflation, especially as we emerge from what was an incredibly low inflationary environment between the global financial crisis and the COVID pandemic. We've emerged into a world where We know that higher inflation has transpired over the past year. Uh, Everybody listening has felt the impacts of that. But what we're thinking about more on the structural basis is that we've emerged from that very low inflation environment. And we're going to have higher inflation going forward over the next five years. uh, We expect 3% inflation on average. Uh, So that's clearly a lot lower than what we have experienced over the past year. But the importance for markets in the U.S., is that is that we're going to have higher interest rates that's going to play through to what the Fed does, the impact on treasury yields, and that's that's an important change there. Then when we look internationally, the other two equity buckets that we do, international developed and then also emerging markets, we think that there are a lot of structural challenges to international developed This is mostly Europe plus Japan and a few other markets, uh, and we don't have that optimistic of a view there. And then emerging markets, the growth trajectory actually looks fairly solid. China is slowing down, uh, but as we'll talk about, some of the changes that we make there come more to the risk to those asset classes. So the biggest change is coming for inflation, Tony. So help us understand how higher inflation and therefore higher interest rates results in potentially different asset allocations, different balance in how we're investing in assets. One of the obvious things might be to expect more bonds in the portfolio, although that's actually not the case. We have about the same amount of bonds in our portfolios going forward now than we did a few years ago, even though we expect interest rates to be higher. And that has to do with the way the risk-free rate impacts all asset classes and not just bonds. Maybe just explain that to us in a, in a non-technical way as you can. So in other words, we've gone from, for muni bonds, for example, an expectation of 3.4% returns to around 5% returns. And for large cap equities, we've gone from around 63 to 7.3. So you can see that on a percentage basis, the increase in returns of munis is much higher 
than the increase for large cap, but we still don't have more munis in the portfolios than we used to. What's going on there? So clearly the higher inflation expectation is going to lead to higher interest rates. This is important when we think about it as a longer term projection, because you and I know on any given day or week or month, if you expect interest rates to move up, then you would not want to be holding fixed income because that means the value of your bonds is going down. On a longer term basis, if you think about over a five year basis, if a 10 year treasury used to return two or two and a half percent, and now it's going to return you four percent, that's more attractive. So those higher rates uh, by themselves look more attractive as a as an investable asset. And then when we broaden that out and say, well, why do we have the the changes that we do in the asset classes? How come we're not just holding more fixed income, more treasuries and more bonds? It's because of that question of relative return. So it is the uh, the risk-free rate. If you think about the U.S. Treasury curve, that's the risk-free rate, and all other asset classes in some way are connected and, and priced off of that. So we've had that higher return expectation for fixed income and, and coming from those interest rates, but we've also, as you said, boosted our return expectations for U.S. large cap, small cap, actually all of the equity categories. So it's a combination of those fixed income rates moving up, but then also the relative differences for for those returns. And where we land after considering those returns and risks is to shift more allocation into the equity buckets and a little bit out of fixed income, Tony. It's so interesting that even though interest rates are higher and bonds are more attractive than they had been, we actually still like equities uh, relatively to the same degree over bonds for any given level of risk. And that has to do with the fact that the risk-adjusted return on equities, so the expected return per unit of risk, still is considerably higher for equities than it is for bonds. And that is really what explains the balance in the portfolio of stocks versus bonds, even though interest rates are, are higher than they have been. Having said that, let's look at a more granular level. One of the changes that we have made, which is a pretty big change, the biggest change in the portfolios, is that our long-term allocation for U.S. equities went up 5%, which is a big number, from 31.5% to 36.5%. And so if an investor had invested in our allocation three years ago and held that allocation over the last three years, their starting allocation in U.S. equities of around 31.5%, which is where we were three years ago, would have grown to become a much larger portion of the portfolio, somewhere around the 36 or 37% that we're now using as our long-term strategic asset allocation in portfolios. So if we want to have clients invested in the U.S. and to a degree that reflects the size of the U.S. stock market to the rest of the world, we have to increase our allocation to U.S. equities in our strategic asset allocations because the U.S. has grown faster than non-U.S. stocks and therefore it's a larger portion of the world. So that's one thing that's going on. The second thing that's going on is we believe that going forward, these U.S. stocks are going to continue to perform relatively well compared to non-U.S. stocks. So maybe take us through each of those questions in sequence. 
Yeah, and I think of this as uh, almost like a little bit of forest for the trees, because if you stood back and just look at the entire forest and say, oh, the U.S. large cap category has drifted up so much, there's a part of you that thinks there must be some kind of mean reversion and it would be set to to underperform. But if you go in and, and look at the trees, which of course is exactly what we're doing and going item by item, what we see is a few things. One, consider where we were relative to three years ago. We were at the end of the longest expansion in U.S. history in an economic sense. Uh, we didn't know it was the end, but we had we were in it well into an economic expansion. And at that time, U.S. large cap equities in particular had become very richly valued. You know, they were pretty expensive. We thought that they would continue to uh, return on a long term basis and, and still think that. But they were they were a little bit more expensive. Some outperformance since then. But then, of course, with last year's performance, we see all asset classes essentially uh, take a hit. And you don't see U.S. stocks in the large cap space valued nearly as highly as they were, say, a year ago and before that. And then sort of the relative change is, is different from the other asset classes. The next step is to look at uh, the trees, so to speak, on what do you expect them to return going forward? And our outlook uh, for the economy, as we look at consumers, as we look at businesses, as we look at the relative competitiveness of the U.S., is positive. So we have moved from when we set the expectation three years ago, U.S. large cap to return 6.3%. We're up 100 basis points now, expecting it to return 7.3%. So that full 100 basis points of increase accompanied by a little bit uh, more risk, is really uh, a positive outlook for U.S. large cap stocks. And that is really what is driving that change there. And how does that compare to non-U.S. developed market stocks? Non-U.S. developed market stocks, so international developed, basically Europe and Japan, we have not changed our outlook as much. So three years ago, it was expected to have higher returns than the U.S., 6.9%, compared to at that time, U.S. large cap, 6.3%. So you'd expect a little bit stronger performance from international developed. It also moved up, but not by the same 100 basis points that U.S. large cap did. It's up only 20 basis points. We think that there are uh, challenges for definitely the European economy over the next uh, five years, which will drag on its performance. International developed is also more heavily weighted to overall global GDP growth, less so than the than the U.S. equities, which are, are sort of more local. Uh, and there's some challenges there. And so international developed does get a bit of an increase in projected return, but not nearly as much, Tony. On a net basis, then, we're decreasing international developments by around 2%. That is essentially funding part of the increase to U.S. large cap, specifically because we think that the outlook for U.S. large cap relative to where we were a few years ago is even brighter now. And then there's also a change that we've made to small cap stocks in the U.S., where we had allocated around 5.5% of the portfolio to them, and now we're down to 4%. So take us through the change in returns to U.S. small cap and why that has occurred. What are those numbers and why, why is that that we have that less optimistic view for small cap? Yeah, it's a couple of reasons. And one is just the, the sort of the hard numbers. And we do boost our outlook for U.S. small cap 
three years ago, expecting returns of 6.9%. That is up now 90 basis points. So going forward, we expect a 7.8%. So that by itself is not quite as high, but on par a little bit with U.S. large cap. Uh, But it's also got a bigger increase in risk. And then stepping aside from just the hard numbers, we've known that for a couple of decades, U.S. small cap has underperformed large cap on a longer term basis by about 85 basis points over the past uh, several years. And that is kind of long term and kind of structural. And the main reasons that we think that that has happened is just that the environment and the structure around small cap has changed so much, especially during the low interest rate environment and structural changes to the market, so much more money flowing to private equity and venture capital, such that some of the best companies that otherwise would be in the small cap index are being picked up by private equity. They're being picked up earlier, and they do not have a chance to really perform in the U.S. small cap equity bucket. And for that reason, even with a higher interest rate environment now, we do expect still some of that relative underperformance. Uh, But as you said, it's not that big of a change. We've gone from 5.5% three years ago allocation to U.S. small cap to to 4% now. So it's still a meaningful part of our allocation. But a relative change there, Tony. So I want to talk about this overall change a bit more deeply from international to the U.S. Before we do that, though, let's just make sure everyone's on the same page on our emerging market views. Had been 5.5%, still 5.5%. So nothing's changing there, correct? Nothing's changing with the emerging uh, market views. That's right. Uh, We boosted the expected returns by 90 basis points. But we also have a higher risk expected there. There's just so much more volatility, so much uncertainty in China, second largest economy in the world, and obviously the largest part of the emerging market index. So higher returns expected, but it's also riskier and it gets no change in portfolios. Okay. So let's go to this point then. We have more assets allocated to the U.S., less to non-U.S. developed international. That almost implies to me that the size of the U.S. economy must be somewhat larger relative to where we were three years ago when we think about the size of the U.S. economy compared to the non-U.S. developed markets. Is there any basis in, in concluding that or seeing that? In other words, we rebounded much more quickly from the pandemic due to the fiscal stimulus here in the U.S. I think that we're meaningfully past our pre-pandemic total economic activity, whereas Europe, as an example, is right around that level, but they haven't really moved much higher than that. So when you think about that, and you think about the trajectory that we're on from a expected growth standpoint, the U.S. continues to be a more vibrant economy, a more technologically advanced economy. As the world continues to adapt technology, it seems to disproportionately favor the U.S., uh, our demographic situation, while not optimal in, in, in that our immigration has taken a hit. It, it is coming back, and we're certainly growing our population, whereas lots of areas, particularly in Northern Europe, are actually shrinking now. I'm throwing a lot out at you, but sort of talk about those issues for us and how those tie into this sort of structural view that the U.S. continues to be the place to be and, and Europe continues to be a more challenged economic zone, if you will, Europe and Japan. I agree with basically all three components of that. And, you know, it's size and growth rate and then and then basically profitability. And on size, you're absolutely right. The U.S. has come through the pandemic 
stronger uh, than most international economies, uh, at least the you know the larger ones that are going to swing asset classes. Uh, some of that fueled by more stimulus in, in 2021. After after everybody had done stimulus in 2020, the U.S. did it again in, in 2021, and uh, it also brings in a whole host of other things. But by and large, the U.S. has done better in terms of bridging that gap from pre-pandemic till now. And that has helped the U.S. be a slightly larger economy in terms of total share than it was beforehand, not nearly as much as the asset class has changed, but larger. The second component, growth rates. We are definitely more optimistic about U.S. growth going forward, both in a baseline sense and some of the risks that surround the U.S. versus other economies. And that certainly helps. And on the third one, I completely agree. U.S. is where capital comes to seek those higher returns. It's where you get more innovation. It's where you have less restrictions on labor markets like you do in Europe and some other parts of the world. Uh, And it's a more dynamic economy. And that's why it's a, a larger market cap in the largest part of the portfolio. The other thing I would mention as well is that for our clients, we're primarily talking about U.S.-based clients, U.S. dollar-based clients. Having a larger allocation to the U.S. reflects what we would call home country bias. To have non-U.S. securities in the portfolio does add an additional source of volatility, which is currency. Because we're dealing with portfolios and assets that are essentially ultimately consumed in dollar terms, we want to be very careful to not include more non-U.S. assets than really is necessary to achieve the diversification benefits, having those assets in the portfolio, because at the same time, we're also including an additional source of risk, which is the currency volatility. For U.S.-based assets, having this U.S. home country bias has made a lot of sense historically, and, and we believe we'll, we'll continue to. So having said all of that, um, one area that I want to dig into also a bit more is that small cap reduction. Tell us a bit more about why we have moved to a smaller chunk in small cap. And it's interesting because for my first 15 years in the industry, small cap always had a better risk adjusted return than large cap and seemed to always outperform large cap. But over the last 10 years, that story has really changed. The question that confronts us is, is that a cyclical change? It's a good question to ask because as we talk about sort of optimism about the U.S. economy that should boost small cap, it has a higher uh, beta, you know, should react even uh, more strongly to, to economic strength than does large cap. It's a good thing to consider. I think the things that push back against that are, one, something we discussed a few minutes ago, and it's that there's been that structural change with uh, so much private equity and and private investment taking out small cap companies in, in their early stages, and that gives you less return there. And then the other thing is just correlations. Also involved in all of this process is watching how uh, different asset classes react to one another, how they move together, that that covariance. And basically, when it comes down to it, even with our optimism about the U.S., the U.S. large cap and small cap move directionally together, and that we have a much different correlation to international developed and emerging markets. So as we put so much more of the assets into U.S. large cap because of our optimism there, overall, we have that higher allocation to the U.S. and large cap and small cap will move together there uh, and balances against some of the uh, the decreases that we have, uh, particularly in, in international developed. So there's a lot of pieces that go into the mix. But even with the reduction to U.S. small cap, what we're reflecting here is 
optimism about the U.S. economy, that home bias that you're talking about, and a recognition that there's been a lot changed across all of the asset classes and also their risks. So for our larger clients that have a minimum of $5 million of investable net worth and also meet certain income thresholds, either $100,000 or $200,000 a year to be accredited investors, we've increased by 5% our allocation to private markets from 15 to 20%. And the reason for this are, are a few things. First is that the private markets, and these are the investments that are essentially structured through limited partnerships, where clients become limited partners directly along with um, the general partner and typically invest in some targeted area of the non-public markets, the private markets. It could be private equity, private debt infrastructure, private real estate, et cetera. And what we see here is that over the last seven or eight years, we've been really emphasizing this program. About 40% of all investable opportunities are now in the private markets, which is an increasingly large share of the total investable universe on the equity side. 60%, of course, remaining in the public markets. And so by not investing in the private markets, we would really be ignoring a very large portion of the opportunity set, and importantly, a very different part of the opportunity set. In many cases, we're talking about smaller companies that are at higher stages of growth in their life cycles. And there are also areas that in many cases are disruptive corners of the economy. Could be e-commerce, industrial warehouses, it could be venture capital in the healthcare space, could be distressed debt at a period of uh, greater economic stress. They tend to be very thematic and they tend to be very opportunistic depending on what's happening in the economy. But there are areas, again, that are typically growing much more rapidly from a return standpoint. And there are also areas that when we have the ability to find uh, outstanding investors, that the skill and experience of those investors can make, frankly, a much bigger difference than in the public markets where there's a much more level playing field in terms of information parity, et cetera. And so we wanted to, subject to being realistic around liquidity concerns, the risk-adjusted returns of private markets is really in another league compared to the public market space. And so we wanted to reflect by bumping up that private market allocation from 15 to 20% for, uh, for clients that are, are in those brackets, if you will, of wealth. So that's one thing that we did. And then the other thing, Luke, maybe you could just share with us to close us out here is to just talk briefly about the the space of inflation-linked bonds. There was a time where you thought you could really provide a lot of value uh, using those inflation-protected securities, the inflation-linked bonds, uh, that the past couple of years would have been when you would do it. And they are uh, esoteric uh, for sure. You know, a lot of their returns are uh, based against a treasury that's not inflation-protected. Uh, and we do th still expect and, and would be able to use it on a tactical basis, but we're not going to keep it as a, a structural allocation in terms of having that uh, 1% dedicated to uh, having those bonds all the time. And of course, investors are still going to be seeing them and be exposed to them within a regular taxable bond portfolio, uh, along with their treasuries. But we just didn't see it as something that we should hold structurally on a long-term basis and keep it as a, as a tactical call when we need it, Tony. They also create a high degree of complexity in terms of how they're taxed. Accountants never like to see them in portfolios. And so we felt that the best thing to do was to just remove them. And then if we have a moment where there's a view that inflation is likely to be 
much higher in, in reality than what markets are pricing in, we could always include them back into portfolios on a temporary basis while we're waiting for that opportunity to play itself out. So overall, I think the story is one that is sensible and shouldn't be surprising, which again is that this is a, a time to reset portfolios given all the changes in the world to reflect the reality that the US economy, large cap stocks in particular, continues to lead the world. These companies continue to dominate, uh, whether they're tech companies or healthcare companies, financial companies, so many sectors of the world where the US economy continues to dominate and continues to grow and take a larger share of the global set of activities that we wanna make sure that we stay ahead of the game with our allocations to the US. And so that's what we've done. And what we will be doing is, given these new assumptions, not just asset class assumptions, but return assumptions, which will impact how wealth grows over the time, both a nominal and an after inflation or real basis, um, we'll be running new financial plans, new Paragon reports that will lay out for clients the probability of meeting their goals or the probability of being able to leave certain uh, levels of wealth to children or to grow portfolios to, to certain targets over time, given the allocations that have changed to asset classes and, and the changes in the return expectations for those asset classes. So those reports, which we call Paragon reports, they're already in flight for many clients, and we'll continue to work on that in coming weeks and months so that as we get through the year, all clients have an opportunity to evaluate their allocations in light of these new assumptions and whether they are allocated optimally given what clients are trying to achieve. With that, I want to thank you, Luke, for being here today. Thank you. And to conclude, I want to remind everyone that our capital market forecast is available at WilmingtonTrust.com. And the reason the capital market forecast is so important is because we, in fact, do believe that inflation will run at a structurally higher level over the next three to five years, despite the fact that inflation's come down considerably. And one might ask, with these new capital market assumptions, will they just go back to where they were? The answer, in our view, at least not in the next three years or so, they will stay higher, which is to say interest rates, inflation, et cetera, will cause us to keep higher nominal return expectations for our, our asset classes. And that's all explained in our capital market forecast, which again, WilmingtonTrust.com is a place to find it. So thank you all. And we look forward to uh, talking to you all again on our next podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Paragon is a portfolio analysis, risk assessment, and goal optimization tool. The Paragon report uses hypothetical examples in conjunction with forecasts for inflation, economic growth, and asset class returns, volatility, and correlation, and provides you with general financial planning information and serves as one tool in helping you develop a strategy for pursuing your financial goals. It is not intended to provide specific legal, investment, 
accounting, tax, or other professional advice. For specific advice on these aspects of your investments, you should consult your professional advisors. The opinions of any guest on the Capital Considerations podcast who are not employed by Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank are their own and do not necessarily represent those of M&T Bank Corporate or any of its affiliates. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk, and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Third-party trademarks and brands are the property of their respective owners. Third parties referenced herein are independent companies and are not affiliated with M&T Bank or Wilmington Trust. Listing them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Wilmington Trust. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definition of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide or seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risks including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial, agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail and business deposits, and other businesses and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. Copyright 2023 M&T Bank and its affiliates and subsidiaries. All rights reserved.